Triathlon Show 390. Of that triathlon show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host Michael, and on today's episode, I interview Peter Lenders. Peter is a Belgian duathlon coach, and uh, he has worked with athletes and is working with athletes at the highest level, including top duathletes uh, Arnaud Delis and uh, Maureen Ricourt. When we recorded the interview, the World Duathlon Championships in Ibiza had not yet taken place, but they have now when I record this intro. So I can confirm that Arnaud finished fourth and Maureen finished eighth. In this interview, we discuss Peter's perspectives on training and coaching, and uh, we dive deep into uh, general endurance training, but also some specifics about duathlon training. But before we get into the interview, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. The Form Smart Swim Goggles give you real-time feedback in your swim training through a display on the goggle lens. You can see your splits, your average pace, and you can even see stroke rate and heart rate if you use polar heart rate monitors. And all of this will help you execute your swim workouts better and make them more fun and engaging. In the form app, you also get access to advanced post-swim analysis, and uh, you can build your own custom workouts or choose from a library of workouts and training plans. And your workouts will sync seamlessly, seamlessly to platforms like Training Peaks, Strava, and so on. You can get 15% off the goggles with the code TTS15 on forumswim.com for slash TTS. And thank you to Senate. The Senate Indoor Swim Trainer is a unique dryland swim trainer that allows you to improve your technique, power, and swim training consistency. It is a perfect tool to complement your pool and open water swimming, as it allows you to do very specific power and technique work, including working your catch and your core activation, and it makes it easier to stay consistent even when you can't go to the pool. You can try the Zenate risk-free for up to 30 days, so if you don't love it, just send it back, and you can get a special TTS bundle including the swim bench and a bunch of Zenate training plans and on-demand workouts on zenateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now without any further ado, here's my interview with Peter Deinders. Welcome to the Triathlon Show, Peter. How are you doing? Great. Thank you, Mikael. Um, I'm uh, very honored to be a guest in this podcast. And um, yeah, I feel a bit uh, small between all these big names that's already featured here. And uh, yeah, But I will do my best to share uh, my passion with uh, the listeners uh, and uh, to have a place between all those great guests with uh, different experts out of uh, many interesting fields. And uh, when athletes ask for a good podcast, I uh, always give them a shortlist with that, that triathlon show always on that shortlist. So uh, I'm really uh, honored to be uh, featured as a guest in the podcast that I uh, listened many episodes of. <laughs> that's that's nice to hear uh thank you for that uh and uh can we start with an introduction tell us a bit more about yourself uh what your what you're doing what your background is and and so on okay with pleasure uh so my name is peter renders uh, i live in the north of belgium uh, close to the border with the netherlands uh, i have three kids and i'm passionate about sports and sports science for all my life so uh I went to the University of Leuven in Belgium uh, to have a master's degree in physical education and sports sciences. Um, I work as a part-time anatomy, physiology, and athletics teacher. And I combine this now for around five and a half years with being part-time a self-employed uh, in 
coach for motivated and ambitious endurance athletes. Uh, I try to bundle uh, not only a, a certain kind of knowledge, but also experience, because in my younger years, I was uh, an athlete myself. First of all, I uh, did long distance running, which, uh, in which I specialized a bit in cross country running, because I felt uh, I was the best in it. And uh, I had the honor to uh, represent uh, Belgium a few times in the European Championships cross country in the elite category. And uh, but I uh, struggled a lot with injuries myself too. And at the age of uh, 32, I started uh, with cycling. I discovered the pleasure of it and. Uh, a friend I knew uh, at that time uh, advised me, why not try a duathlon race? Uh, Belgium has a certain uh, legacy in duathlon. We have famous uh, duathletes who uh, won the world championships, European championships. And uh, I tried uh, a duathlon race. I won the first four duathlon races that summer, and including the national championship in the sprint distance. And uh, so in the last part of my career as an athlete, I uh, focused uh, more on duathlon uh, in combination with, uh, with uh, a little bit of road running too. Uh, yeah, my most important performances in duathlon were a medal at the European Championships in the elite category. And I one time participated uh, also in Zofingen. That's a bit uh, Hawaii uh, for the duathletes, the Powerman World Championship. And uh, the time I uh, I uh, participated there, I was fourth in the elite category. So uh, after I stopped trying to get the best out of myself, I prepared uh, two years to study further, to follow a few courses, uh, to prepare all the documents, all the methodologies to uh, coach people. And I wanted to be very sure that I had uh, enough knowledge to make uh, people better. And uh, that's what I'm doing for the last uh, five and a half years now. Uh, I'm... Uh, I uh, like doing uh, being a coach and uh, get the best out of people, uh, help him then. And uh, the most famous athletes I coach are two uh, world-class two athletes. They both have a professional contract in Belgium that are Arnaud Delis and Maureen Ricourt. And uh, besides duathlon, uh, they reach a pretty high level in running too. For example, Arnaud Delis has a personal records of 28 minutes, 20 seconds on the 10K road in Valencia. And uh, Maureen Ricour runs uh, sub-34 minutes in uh, on a 10K. So, uh, yeah, the duathlon at the highest level is, is, uh, is, not, uh, is often underestimated. And, um, yeah, it's a, a very exciting weekend because uh, this weekend they both uh, are going to participate in the World Multisport Championships in uh, Ibiza. And that's um, sprint distance, uh, draft legal duathlon. So it's five kilometers, 20 kilometers, two and a half kilometers. And they also do the mixed relay, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, I think it's a tendency to uh, make races shorter for uh, it's uh, more interesting, more spectacular 
spectacular for the for uh, spectators uh, for television. And uh, last a few years ago, uh, the World Championships were in the Olympic format. Uh, also in duathlon, even it is not an Olympic discipline, uh, they called it Olympic distance. That was 10k of running, 40k or cycling, and then uh, 5k of running. But uh, they cut the distance in half, and so it's uh, shorter now. Yes. Yeah, and then when you mentioned just for the listeners that are not really familiar with duathlon, when you talked about surfing and and the power man before, that's uh, that's a longer distance and and non drafting element, so more more similar to to long distance uh, triathlon in uh, in a way with with the non drafting element. So so it's it functions similarly to triathlon, but you do two runs instead of uh, instead of one swim and one run. Yes, correct. Uh, in Zofinge, uh, distances are uh, fixed for, for some years now, and you start with uh, a 10k of running. That is already very challenging with a lot of uphill. It's in Switzerland, so uh, they have mountains there. They can uh, yeah, choose for uh, very demanding uh, courses. Uh, the cycling is 150 kilometers with a lot of uh, mountains you have to climb. And then the last run that makes it uh, a real challenge is uh, 30 kilometers of uh, yeah, running with a lot of off-road and uphill. So, uh, yeah, it's very demanding. That's very demanding, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Um, so let's uh, talk about your, let's say, training philosophy. Can you give an overview of, of that? Yeah, my uh, training philosophy comes... Uh, a bit from out of my own experience as an athlete and uh, bad days or bad periods I had. And exp- I, the different coaching styles I uh, experienced myself. And I think I'm, as a coach, I'm a rather a cautious coach because I think I have a co-responsibility about the physical and mental health of athletes. And I like to, uh, to take uh, it step by step and start rather cautious uh, because I don't want uh, my athletes uh, to have injuries or to lead them into overtraining. So... Uh, when I wor- start to work with with an athlete, I uh, I will uh, always start very very uh, easy because I'm not always aware of what they did uh, before uh, we started the collaboration and maybe they are slightly overtrained and you can try to uh, detect that with athletes uh, with plot analysis and. Uh, with what they what they uh, mention to you, but it's not always very clear. So uh, when the first period, uh, I plan uh, rather easy, and but you see it in in the whole uh, approach that I uh, like to uh, apply. So uh, especially also with younger athletes, I think uh, that sometimes you are better slightly undertrained than overtrained, and that's uh, a cautious approach in, in very uh, much cases or athletes can lead to uh, a lot of good results and progress. And if you uh, detect on intermediate tests or races that there is progress and everything is going into the right direction, then uh, I often think by myself why I would uh, uh, 
try to uh, apply extreme methods or hypes uh, when uh, with uh, applying the basic principles and a cautious approach, there is already uh, continuous progress. So uh, uh, it takes sometimes patience and also courage to to dare to uh, train easy a lot and to uh, do it for, for uh, long enough. Uh, but uh, And you have to convince, uh, in most cases, the athletes to step into uh, this approach. But, uh, yeah, in some kind of way, I think in the long term, it's, it works out better. Uh, but when you see sometimes athletes who are uh, conducting epic workouts week after week, then sometimes they uh, perform very well with it. But you always have to to wait and see if they can maintain it for two or three years, uh, because sometimes after that comes the crash, and then uh, that's not what I want to uh, or to uh, be the the cause of for my athletes uh, that I uh, go for short term success. I always try to see the long term bigger picture. Uh, so uh, in my whole coaching philosophy, I see it also as a long-term learning process. As an athlete, my time was rather limited to have to reach achieve my uh, top potential. But as a coach, I have uh, the rest of my life to to get better, to get smarter, to learn more, to improve more. And so, why not try it with a cautious approach first? that uh, has less chance for overtraining injuries and bad experiences. And after that, after I know athletes a little bit more, uh, after I see that they respond well to the approach, then uh, yeah, loosen the, the reins a bit more and, and then step by step uh, yeah, put more on their plate, uh, as to speak. You, you said that it takes courage to train easy enough and also long enough sometimes so with that can uh i would interpret it as you wouldn't necessarily be afraid to give a certain amount of volume you would be more cautious with intensity than with volume is that is that correct yes um that is in some kind of way correct um because uh i see a lot of uh yeah, athletes who are doing intensity-based approaches but are not uh, getting the results that I think they can. Uh, you see a lot of Strava nowadays, but uh, athletes uh, have a network. Uh, they they know what other athletes are doing. They talk about it. You see the athletes that, that you coach uh, compare sometimes with them with other athletes of their generation. And you uh, compare the progress, and then I can say, I think after some years, that uh, some athletes who I coach are making more progress than some other athletes who do other approaches. And then sometimes I think that it's because of they uh, do are doing intensity too often. Uh, that uh, in this kind of way, that is rather counterproductive than that it helps them to uh, achieve continuous progress. I see also uh, athletes uh, that are uh, more injured and overtrained a lot. Uh, and 
yeah that it's uh unfortunately uh for lucky i must say uh, it's not the case with uh, the athletes i coach so uh i think for example arnaud de lee i coach him now almost four years and he hadn't had to skip one day of training because of a severe injury So that's something I am very proud of because I find that very important. I uh, realized from my own career as an athlete, a modest athlete, I must say, but I, for, I wasn't the big, biggest talent, but I tried to get the best out of myself uh, and find uh, satisfaction in improvement uh, when I compared with myself, not with others. But uh, it was... was uh, Not pleasant when you were injured and you you are very uh, passionate about your your sports and then when it fell away, then uh, it was uh, as well physical as mental uh, very hard sometimes to deal with it and uh, yeah it can can have effect on on your work or relationships ships on on uh, study results so. Uh, Yeah, that's also a few reasons why I prefer to to uh, do not uh, extreme uh, things or jump on every hype uh, or yeah, rather uh, do not too much intensity and keep the training intensity distribution. Uh, it is not a goal, but I think it's it's following automatically from from a balanced approach uh, to keep it uh, very. Uh, in favor of uh, low intensity work can we go into some duathlon specific uh, questions regarding training so of course it might be a bit individual but some in addition to the things you already said here with low intensity training and and avoiding injury and so on how would you for a duathlete for example distribute bike and run volume how would you plan the frequency of workouts Would you do specific brick workouts or transition training? Some some of these uh, questions that are specific to duathlon training would be uh, interesting to get into. Yes, uh, I must say duathlon training in itself uh, does not uh, differ that much from uh, other endurance disciplines, and uh, certainly uh, not from the parts that are practiced, uh, being running and cycling. Uh, so uh, I coach besides of duathlon also runners. Uh, but it's the combination of two, aligning everything and ensuring that those two disciplines reinforce each other and do not interfere, that uh, makes it more challenging than a monosport, so to speak. It's sometimes uh, scratching my head. Uh, yeah, I want them to have to get the best uh, possible level in running and cycling, but you cannot train as a runner. Uh, and you cannot train as a cyclist. So it's always, uh, yeah, make a combination and try to to uh, combine the best uh, possible uh, key workouts with, with enough easy work to uh, have a good base. But um, yeah, it's, it's true, uh, I think, a uh, combination of a balanced uh, 
ratio between base work and intensity in both running and cycling as well that I try to help to maximize the athletes, uh, both their cycling and running level. And uh, yeah, that's an elite duathlete on average, uh, for example, uh, does less volume in each of the, the sports separately. So less volume in running as an elite runner and less volume in cycling as an elite cyclist. But combined, I think the training hours uh, on a weekly basis will be roughly in between the two. Uh, it's more as a runner and it's less as a cyclist and maybe a bit uh, comparable with, with most of the triathletes because uh, triathletes sometimes does uh, triple training days when they uh, conduct one running session, one cycling session and uh, swimming session. Uh, my duathletes do uh, often uh, two running sessions and a cycling session on top. So that's three sessions a day. And uh, on, on a lot of days, they do uh, a running session, a cycling session, and a core strength session. So that's also uh, three uh, sessions a day. Of course, it, it depends a bit on the level of the athlete and the work-life balance. But if I have the... I'm speaking about the professional duathletes. Uh, yeah, it's almost every day, uh, two or three sessions. So uh, for the most intensive workouts, uh, the same applies here too. Uh, in number, uh, they're undoubtedly uh, a bit fewer than, than uh, a runner and as a cyclist, but together it will be uh, roughly the same because... Uh, Imagine a runner does uh, two uh, interval sessions in the heavy domain. Then a duathlete will do one cycling session and a week and one running session. So uh, it's uh, yeah, both of the combination of the both of the both world both worlds, and uh, that's yeah, that are some basic principles. Yeah, that's good. And what about uh, brick workouts uh, and or transition work? Is that something that you use? Yes, uh, sometimes uh, I must say uh, that the more experienced the level, the less brick workouts they do or they need, uh, because um, it's not that they have to uh, adapt anymore to the transition from cycling into running or from the, after the first run cycling. The most important uh, transition is from, from cycling into running, the second transition. And then the most of the important races are decided in the last run. Uh, the athletes who can, can uh, achieve the, the highest speeds there, uh, in most cases, wins the race. Uh, okay, I have it on the web found for speed. Excuse me, <laughs> the tablet was <laughs> playing. Uh, so, uh, yeah, brick workouts are most for the unexperienced athletes and um, who has to uh, get used to the transition and uh, on a neuromuscular basis. And then uh, I uh, often schedule uh, an uh, easy endurance run after a key workout in cycling. So there is some, some pre-fatigue uh, and then the, the running. And then a, a gradual, on a gradual basis, I, uh, I um, in, enhance or improve the intensity of the workouts. 
So uh, that can be a uh, cycling workout and a more uh, intensive uh, running session. If there is a structural problem in transition of the, the athletes ask to do it more, then you can also uh, choose for a multiple format, which uh, implicates that there is uh, a session that with uh, multiple transitions and uh, intervals in running, cycling, running, cycling, uh, most uh, done indoor if athletes have a treadmill and an indoor cycling trainer. Uh, but in Belgium, too, there are uh, sports um, centers which have uh, a cycling track outdoor and next to an athletic, athletics track. And then you can uh, conduct uh, uh, interval sessions uh, with, uh, with uh, reps on the athletics track uh, and uh, reps on the cycling track. So, that's so, so this this is a bit of a random question, but I'm, I'm interested in in that setup with the bike track and athletics track. Um, are the bikes safe, or do they have to lock them up uh, at the by next to the bike track before they go to the athletics track, or or can they actually just put the bike to the side and then go and run, and they can see the bike all the time, or or how does that work? Yeah, it, I it's. Uh, I'm talking about sports center. I uh, trained myself in my athlete career, and I advise it sometimes to go to the to athlete I coach to go to if they it's uh, they live not too far from it. But uh, you can you can drive with a bike to uh, from the athletics track on on a, yeah a road. It's not off road. A road to the the cyclist track, and if you have someone who accompanies you with the, the training session then then uh, the bike is safe uh when you are running on the track so uh. yeah cool um and may maybe we can if if you're okay with it can you give an example training week maybe from uh, from arnold or morin in their preparation for uh the world championships uh just maybe not the taper week but some like a normal build week to get an example of what duathlon training at the highest level looks like Yes, um, they, the last uh, period they uh, had planned a few races uh, as well, a duathlon race as a road race. So I, I will explain a week uh, without a race. So uh, sure. that, yeah, a, a typical training week uh, leading up to the most important phase of the season. In March, we had the European Championships where they both took the silver medal in the individual race. And um, so uh, a bit before that, uh, there was a week on a training camp in Spain and the most of the typical sessions that uh, were built up during the month before were uh, planned in, the, in that week. And uh, yeah, the athletes trained each day two or three times both a running session and a cycling session. And some of the days they uh, conducted uh, two running sessions and a cycling session on top. And the other days it was only running uh, once, cycling once, and uh, sometimes also a core or strength session. Um, the two weeks uh, where I'm talking about, where there were 18 and 19 sessions during these two consecutive weeks, the training hours were around 30 at 32 hours. 
that's everything includes also the core and strength work. So that's uh, yeah, uh, training at the highest level. If it's now running or uh, triathlon or duathlon, it takes a lot of training, uh, and you have to. It's I know it's rather a small discipline, but if you are not uh, yeah a, a talent in endurance sports and you can you don't have high uh, a high level in running or uh, you cannot push high watts in cycling, then yeah you are not top in at uh, the European uh, Championships or World Championships. So it's it's uh, ask a lot of training too. So uh, when I look at that uh, first week, then um, it was uh, starting after the travel day with two uh, easy easy sessions. It was uh, a jog, running jog for 50 minutes and uh, one cycling session of two hours easy. Then the second day, it was a longer cycling session in the hills in Spain for uh, four hours. They uh, stayed in the Synchrosfera Hotel with an altitude room there. So it was training uh, low, living, sleeping high. Where, where in Spain is this? What part of Spain? Uh, Denia, uh, in the, uh, a little bit south of Valencia uh, and uh, on the east coast of Spain. If you uh, see it on world map, it's the west of, uh, of Ibiza and Mallorca. Great place for uh, training there. The, a lot of pro cyclists like Mathieu van der Poel, Remco van der uh, Evenepoel, uh, they uh, they met them there at, uh, at the same roads. So uh, it's uh, a bit well known for uh, elite athletes to go there. But uh, the second day, it was a far hour, far hour during uh, easy rides and one hour easy running. The third uh, day, We drove up a little bit with a pre-breakfast morning jog of a good of a half an hour. Uh, later in the uh, morning after breakfast, a few hours, there was a key cycling session with uphill maximal and submaximal sprints, uh, followed by what you can call zone two training. <laughs> and I, most likely we will uh, talk about this later in, in this podcast. But I will... I will uh, I will uh, give some examples. Now, for uh, Arno and uh, Maureen, it was a little bit adjusted, but for Arno, it was six times 12 minutes with short rests uh, with alternating cadence. So uh, it was uphill with the pond because if he has to do it on a flat, it's uh, rather high wattages he has to push and reach uh, high speeds. So to keep it safe, uh, it's done... Uh, If it's possible, uphill. At home, he mostly uh, prefer to do it uh, on the indoor trainer, so he can also uh, maintain uh, the same uh, yeah, intensity level uh, and don't uh, have to be afraid that he is uh, yeah, uh, hit by a car or something. Because uh, in Belgium, we have very busy traffic and uh, small and uh, not always good roads, so. Uh, It was uh, a key cycling session, so with, with first a bit of lactate production and then lactate clearance, you can call it, because zone two, zone two uh, if you conduct it well, as uh, yeah, boosts lactate clearance capacity. Uh, I will talk later about it. And then uh, it was the third day was completed with the third session later that day, 
Uh, they had a power nap after uh, lunch. And then uh, in the late afternoon, they did uh, an easy run, a little bit as active recovery from the cycling session. So it was the third session that they... Then uh, there was a uh, recovery, easy day. Uh, after uh, the third day, uh, we did cycling key session and it was an easy ride and an easy run. The run is then a bit faster than a normal recovery run. You can call it just an, an easy endurance run. Then uh, on the fifth day, there was uh, also an uh, easy run, a strength session and a longer uh, ride uh, on the bike for three hours. And then uh, on Saturday, there was another key session. So um, plant first uh, before breakfast, they did a uh, half an hour pre-morning uh, wake up run. So it's a little bit to uh, activate the body that gives them energy. It's also the feedback I uh, get often. Uh, they do uh, on race days, uh, most days, if it's possible, they do also a pre-breakfast morning jog. And uh, the, the advantage of it is that if you plan a key session or, or, or a race later that day and you start a warming up, you have the feeling that you all have already been warmed up. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's mental and physical. It gives, it has benefits, but also for the, yeah, the feel, the feeling. Uh, I think also on on days of of important workouts or races that it's a bit stress relieving. So uh, it's as science has, has indicated that that uh, activity and sports that it can can uh, diminish uh, stress levels. And I think on on a day with with uh, a lot of stress, go for a little walk or a little jog can can help to to uh, cope with the stress. So. Uh, also on, on uh, and when you have a certain level and you do uh, an easy morning jog of, of 30, 35, 40 minutes, you don't really feel it later today, but it counts in the volume and in the, the distance of running that you can achieve over a whole week and in the total picture. So uh, I prefer to, uh, I advise it a lot to athletes if they have the level and have the time to uh, do an extra short session this way. But um, the, on the fifth day, the key session in cycling was uh, a heated interval. And that's some kind of workouts I, I uh, prefer to apply. And it, the heated is called, is the, uh, the meaning of it is high intensity decreasing interval. Uh, and it uh, implies a series in different intensity zones with increasing intensity but decreasing duration. And the reason that I plan this often is that you can play a lot with the several intensities, the amount of reps, and uh, athletes uh, often give the feedback that they like this kind of training. I see a lot of advantages in it, and uh, I read it in science too, and it fits in the picture how I see uh, training uh, must be tailored to the, the specific fiber types of athletes uh, and their characteristics and how they, in my opinion, uh, are be best um, stimulated. 
So uh, after this uh, heated interval session that was conducted uphill, they had uh, some hours later a recovery running session. Then on the last day of the week, uh, there was a long run of about one hour and a half and uh, an easy cycling and an alternative session by choice. With, and they choose to go for uh, swimming uh, on the seventh day. Then uh, that was an easy day. And then the, the eighth day on Monday of the second week, there was uh, a running uh, cycling intervals. Uh, running uh, cycling is not the right word. Uh, there was a running interval session, key workout, uh, followed the day after by two easy sessions. The day, two days after the uh, key workout in running, when we go to into the, the heavy domain, uh, then uh, I always plan two days of recovery. And um, so the training camp continued with, uh, yeah, you know, on the same rhythm. All right. Nice. Thank you for that breakdown. Um, so when what what is the volume there in, if you look at the seven days, let's say, so a weekly breakdown of how much volume is done on the bike and how much volume is done uh, on the run? Yeah, that's uh, that goes uh, for running. Um, it's not that they do it every week, but uh, for running, it was uh, more than 130 kilometers. And for uh, I'm at, I'm not a coach at this, uh a lot that a lot of uh, of volume uh, oriented because I I look at uh, the periodization and the build up. Uh, first and i plan the sessions that they fit into the the whole picture but uh sometimes a lot of volume uh yeah follows out of it and then it can go up to uh yeah, a few hundreds of kilometers for cycling and uh, that can be around 300 400 500 uh this this uh, period and week it was more than 500 kilometers 550 around to be uh very concrete and the run it was uh, 130 150 kilometers that week that was yeah the most heavy week of uh, this build up yeah and and to summarize the the harder workouts that were done heavy or severe intensity domain can you list them again the bike and the run hard workouts that you did to to uh explain them in a uh, yeah just just list them so we have so just for me uh, for me maybe for the listeners but at least for me uh to to calculate how how many how many harder workouts were there in that week and what and what were the structure of them were they heavy domain or in, or severe domain the first week there was only uh if actually there was only one cycling session in the in the yeah you call it uh, above the the maximum like that steady state and the critical speed or power uh, there are some some uh, terminologies that are used uh, to describe this and in the second week uh but it's also because i i look at it uh as a mesocycle so sometimes uh when there is a travel day or there was a, ro a road race uh right before the first week then we have a recovery day more so uh the the first real hard running session was on the eighth day that's 
that, that means Monday of the second week. So the first week there was only one uh, very hard cycling session. And the second week there was... Uh, uh, there were two uh, hard uh, cycling sessions, uh, running sessions, and one hard cycling session. So that's uh, yeah. And the running sessions, the were the cycling sessions both in the severe domain, uh, and the running. You said one at least one was in the heavy domain. How did that split up in wh- where the which domain they were in? Yeah, uh, on this this uh, phase actually. They uh, consisted of of uh, different domains. I try to com- uh, I like to combine a lot, and uh, maybe I will uh, explain it later in this podcast. But uh, yeah, there are some some power duration curves, and there is a power duration curve that is uh, famous. Uh, uh, there is a lot of science about it, and uh, that's the the power duration of the the maximum performance you can uh, for example uh, of the speed duration in running that you can uh, your, your re- the the speed or the the time you can achieve on a 5k a 3k a 1500 meter uh, a 10k uh, there is uh, you can compose a, a speed duration curve and for cycling with some key tests uh, you can uh, do uh, you can also compose uh, power duration curve, but I think there are some other important uh, similar curves too. I call it efficiency duration curves, and I like to train them uh, in different ways to uh, I, because I think that uh, enhances uh, the adaptation of training. And I think there are uh, strategies of the body to recruit the different fiber types and, uh, and that they play a role in uh, this type of uh, training and adaptation that I try to plan. So maybe this is a good point to actually discuss that about muscle fiber typology uh, because we discussed it a little bit over email that that's something that you you use uh, in planning the training. So what are your thoughts? How how does that play a role in how you prescribe training? Yeah, it's a, a very interesting topic. And, and uh, yeah, I was uh, myself fascinated uh for a, for a long time about it, about uh, how the body uh, decides to recruit fibers, uh, how t- when it recruits the, the slow twitch fibers, the type one fibers, when it's the body starts to recruit uh, faster fibers, and uh, yeah, the muscle fiber typology and uh, the composition of it, uh, all all the literature about it, I try to collect and read because uh, yeah, it's some of the topics I find very interesting, and I think. Uh, that it can that some kind of knowledge can have advantages to uh, yeah, program training schedules, and uh, because uh, and let's start with the basics. Every everyone who is a little familiar with uh, physiology knows uh, that the body can the body has different muscle fibers uh, at its disposal, and uh, there is much. Uh, known about their different characteristics and also a bit about ho- how our body recruits them. 
perhaps there is not uh, yet fully scientific consensus about everything or neither there is 100% evidence. But as a coach, you can have a certain scientific baggage and the mentality of a scientist to, uh, is not a bad characteristic, but you cannot have constant doubts about everything and questioning every part of training program and scheduling because otherwise it's impossible to coach. Uh, you have to uh, have certain principles that are known and try to translate it into training practice and sometimes think what I call physiological uh, doing this. So uh, I look at the nature of the muscle fibers and the basic uh, principles, how they uh, are formed and respond in order to stimulate them in an efficient, tailored way. And I think it challenges them efficiently and provoke a targeted adaptations. When we speak about the slow twitch fibers, uh, the type 1 fibers, they have the most oxidative properties. There is no discussion about it. They are thinner, more robust than the faster muscle fibers. They recover faster, can contain more oxidative enzymes, have more capillaries, more mitochondria, are more efficient over time, can burn more fats, and can so spare glycogen. They, can, uh, they are better in consuming lactates, and that's thanks to imparts of different transporters, MCT1 for lactate import instead of MCT4 for lactate export, and also thanks to an LDH isoform whose equilibrium constant favors pyruvate production in the cytosol rather than lactate. Uh, then this intramuscular lactate pyruvate ratio, which is always there, uh, uh, in favor by lactate, uh, uh, they can maintain it better. So the name of the slow twitch fiber also is a bit misleading because they can uh, manage a lot of tension and they can produce a lot of energy. Uh, science, uh, scientific research about elite uh, and world-class athletes in cycling, in duathlon, triathlon, uh, every research uh, I can get my hands on on the internet, I am trying to read and, and, uh, and process. But uh, when you see at lactate curves of elite athletes, you always see a very long, flat baseline and a very high uh, uh, power or speed that they can reach before they uh, their lactate uh, starts to their blood lactate starts to rise. So the they have the ability to process. Uh, a lot of energy or to, to, to produce a lot of energy without uh, the body has the need to shift lactate to the bloodstream. They can manage it uh, intramuscular. And that's all, of course, because of a lot of capillaries, because of a lot of mitochondria. So my, my uh, question for myself was, why not try to maximize that capacity uh, to that uh, there is no need to uh, shift of sh or shuttle lactate to the bloodstream. So when I do a conduct a lactate test, uh, I see, I noticed that all the best performers always reach uh, higher speeds or, or power with, with low lactate levels. And that if you train at the, the lactate levels that are very low, 
Uh, my guess is that the most oxidative fibers are at work at this point. So if you uh, train them at their maximum capacity to uh, deal it uh, intramuscular and not shift a lot to the to the bloodstream, I think that is a very efficient way to train the most oxidative fibers, mostly type 1 fibers, to... Uh, yeah, improve their uh, ability to deliver work and uh, in over the weeks and cycles to uh, be able to reach higher speeds or higher power with uh, lower blood lactate levels. So uh, that's something that I try to maximize. And the advantage of it is that if you trigger the mostly the type 1 fibers, it's also less stressful for the central nervous system, there is less hormonal response because uh, when they demand a lower firing rate of the central nervous systems, there are less uh, catalogamines uh, needed in the for the body, and uh, it helps to achieve uh, uh, or maintain. Uh, yeah, a training intensity distribution that is uh, in favor of a lot of easy work. Uh, the only problem is that uh, for a lot of athletes uh, in the beginning, when you start to work with it, with them, it is uh, it is rather easy. And uh, regarding RPE and intensity, and they often don't have the confidence or the patience to to maintain the easy work i have to, a lot of to convince it but if they do uh it uh, always is uh, leading to a lot of progress because if you uh, trigger the type 1 fibers and they recover good you can can uh, shorten the the uh, the recovery time between sessions and and you can re- reach a certain point that you can train three times a day without feeling anything the day after it. You don't have to do that when you uh, are, are continuously uh, recruiting faster fibers because their characteristics don't allow that they recover that fast and they can uh, become more oxidative, but uh, not... Uh, that oxi- oxidative as the type 1 fibers and not that efficient as the type 1 fibers. So uh, can, I, can I follow up on one thing there? So this is really interesting. Um, and when you say that you think that when where you have the lowest lactate, I think you said when you have the lowest lactate, that's when the where you recruit the most oxidative fibers and, and that's where you want to train. So... So if you have a lactate curve on athlete, quite often you will see that it starts going down and then it starts going up again, but it's still at baseline. So would you aim to train at that kind of minimum lactate point or am I reading too much into that? And, uh, or yeah, how? Yeah, it's, it's close to the minimum lactate point. It's, it's where the, the curve is right starts, starts to rise, uh, Imagine the most okay, so close closer to your LT1, your first, like, yeah, first very close okay. to the LT1 and the first uh inflection point. If there is an inflection point, in, in uh, many cases, there is, and then it makes it a, a bit easier to to uh to determine. But uh, in some cases, there isn't an inflection point, and then then you can uh, uh use heart rate and RPU 
RPE in combination with with uh, with elected uh, of an athlete, but in in uh, athletes who have a, a well balanced uh, physiology and who I work uh, longer with, I see almost in any case elected levels around. 1.4 to 1.7 millimole, and that's uh, a good, in my opinion, a good spot to, uh, yeah, to uh, draw the upper limit of easy work. And if you train very close to that upper limit, I think the most oxidative fibers are almost all at work right before the body switches to more glycolytic fibers and that's when the blood uh, stream or the blood lactate uh, increases in the bloodstream uh, that's uh, yeah that's point uh, I try in these sessions uh, to avoid uh, because I want to target fibers that uh, can uh, deal intramuscular with with uh, lactate buildup and they have uh, a lot of capillaries mitochondria and and then uh, probably they are the most uh, type 1 fibers. So uh, you can, if you do uh, stay below this intensity, you can, you are pretty sure that you can almost train on a daily basis uh, at these intensities. Of course, the higher the level of the athlete, the be- the the best it is to stay a bit far away from the upper limits uh, of the LT1 because you cannot train uh, every day uh, slightly below the LT1. The more easy workouts, uh, yeah, they have a long flat baseline on lactate curves and and, uh, there is a lot of playroom below the LT1. So, uh, yeah, it demands uh, a lot for uh, the elite duathletes and elite runners too to uh, run around uh, or cycle around the LT1. For To give an example, for Arnaud Delis, it's a pace of 3.15 to 3.10 uh, minutes per kilometer, and then he's training at uh, this intensity in a running session. And when he uh, samples like that, he, in most cases, he is around 1.5. So, uh, yeah, that's below five minutes per mile for american listeners i i think just just below if i do my math right uh, uh so yeah that that makes makes a lot of sense so when in the example training weeks that you talked about before the uh zone two work that's where you are going for that kind of lt1 intensity but when you mention easy run then they are going basically whatever feels easy on the on the day is that correct Yes, that's correct. Of course, I uh, determine uh, several zones, and that's that's maybe a bit. Uh, uh, it, I wouldn't call it a critic, but critics, but uh, maybe uh, when I, I don't find uh, the zone two the the most suited name because uh, it looks like there is only one zone below. That's the recovery zone or the the yeah, the very, very easy zone. And then zone two w- would be uh, uh, a large uh, spectrum, but I think it's rather a small uh, range of intensity. And uh, when I, uh, yeah, I determine my, my tra- training zones uh, and I start, 
at the lowest spectrum, it's the fourth zone. <laughs> so the first zone is the, the absolute recovery zone, very, very easy. And then for the, the longer workouts, I have my endurance one zone. Uh, for the faster endurance workouts, I have the, the endurance two zone. And then uh, right below the LT1, uh, that's the zone two. I think uh, uh, Inigo San Milan, who uh, invented uh, the zone two and is doing... Uh, uh, yeah, it's talk, tell, talking a lot of interesting things about it, and uh, that's that's uh, I call it the tempo extensive zone because I, in my opinion, if you go above it, you come into the more intensive zones. You come, uh, go, you go uh, closer to thresholds, the maximum like that steady state, and uh, but in in uh, elite athletes, it's very close to each other. When I uh, compare lactate curves of uh, athlete, elite athletes, it's always that they have a very high LT1 and the gap between the LT1 and when they uh, go over 2 millimole is always very uh, close to the maximum lactate state. And when you see uh, more recreational athletes or athletes who are training intensity-based, or a lot of thresholds, I see, uh, I notice uh, more bigger gaps between LT1 and LT2 and between 2 and 4 millimole. And I think that is uh, not the, the best uh, yeah, lactate curve you can have uh, to uh, make continuous progress. So, uh, but that's uh, only regarding the type 1 fibers. Uh, uh, Bearing in mind the Hennemann size principle, uh, that's some principle that's also known in, in science, that which say that the slowest, thinnest muscle fibers are recruited first. Uh, and there is a preference of the body to tend to not activate what is not necessary to conserve energy. So I think you can teach the body to become more efficient in doing that. So you can teach the body to use the type 1 the uh, at least the most oxidative muscle fibers as isolated as possible to be able to sustain this as long as possible and to maximize it that you can go to the highest possible intensity before the body begins to shift to additionally recruit faster or more glycolytic fibers. So uh, I think an endurance athlete has a lot of advantage to maximize their uh, ability to recruit the most oxidative fibers and in an almost isolated way. And I think uh, Inigo Sambilan is uh, trying to tell this and, and means this with zone two, because when he's talking about lactate levels, he's all also talking about this 1.5, 1.6 millimole. And uh, I believe that uh, when I combine it with some basic physiology and some research, I read that uh, there are uh, some principles that make sense because besides the Henneman size principle, you have also the orderly cycling principle, and which implies that, and it's research has indicated this with elite cyclists and runners, for example, that elites 
and compared with recreation athletes, are better at switching between muscle fiber groups and motor units to maintain a certain intensity. So parts of a muscle and groups of type 1 fibers can rest while other parts do the work, while more recreational athletes uh, way faster shift to more glycolytic, more dominant fibers if they are uh, not uh, well-trained or they have the uh, bad luck that they are more uh, type 2 uh, dominant types. Uh, so they have to uh, be very cautious with the intensity uh, of uh, zone 2 and LT1. But I think that the relative contribution of those, the maximum potential of those type 1 fibers, uh, in my opinion, is, is far too little research. Uh, there has long been a focus on high-intensity interval training, on threshold training, and on training at the, that the power of speed, uh, the maximum aerobics power of speed, and of course, these trainings, forms and intensities certainly fits into a balanced training structure and approach. But uh, there is a certain uh, view and approach in this area. Uh, there is, I think, that a structural adjustments uh, that training at a bit lower intens intensities entail often only take uh, place in the longer term. And that's a bit in contrast to... Uh, to uh, what happens quickly, uh, the adaptation uh, pathways of faster fibers. So in research, it's not that easy to, to uh, conduct research on, on lower intensities because the mo the, you only see results after months of training this, that the body has structural adaptations. So... Uh, yeah, that's... Uh, it, it's, it's unfortunate, but it makes some sense. Nobody wants to do a PhD and take 10 years to complete it by doing four, two and a half year studies or, or something like that. So, yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, but yeah, it's just a dilemma of how academics work and the need to publish and, and also just the, the cost of, of uh, running studies and recruiting participants and so on. Um, about the muscle fibers still, do you, do you approach training differently if you have an athlete that you feel is more, let's say, fast twitch dominant versus slow twitch dominant? Do, would you approach them differently? Yes, I'm more cautious, cautious with volume, uh, with uh, predom predominant uh, type 2 uh, Fiber type athletes. Uh, at at uh, an initial test, I uh, let them conduct uh, submaximal effort too, to uh, in combination with the the first part of the of the tests to have uh, a good indication of their their uh, capabilities of their explosive. Uh, of course, you can can get it out of of uh, an intake. Uh, Conversation too, and on training his and the performance history, but uh, yeah, type two predominant uh, athletes uh, has has less type one fibers, so their uh, capability to maintain uh, the work is uh, rather limited. Uh, they are. Uh, 
yeah, faster depleted in glycogen and uh, the body shifts faster to uh, their type 2 fibers. And when they do intensity work, uh, they can adapt well to it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's uh, way more uh, challenging to uh, avoid injuries and overtraining when you do a lot of intensity and volume in uh, predominant type 2 uh, fiber type athletes. So uh, I plan uh, shorter reps uh, for these athletes and the uh, has to train the easy, a lot easier than, than uh, the type 1 uh, athletes. Yep. Right. And... Uh... We meant you mentioned lactate testing. It, do you, what other testing do you do, or do you do any other testing? Um, the athletes I work with, they uh, of the highest level, they go also to uh, a university lab for uh, yeah the the test for for uh, no to VO two and the VCO two in absolute and relative values, the ventilatory thresholds and and so on. Uh, thanks to their federation, there is a co- collaboration with with the university lab. Uh, so uh, I bought myself a portable uh, VO two uh, device, but unfortunately, it doesn't work well i would not recommend it to other athletes or coaches i lost uh, yeah, quite some money on it so uh, it was uh, a brand i don't know if i can mention the name <laughs> you can <laughs> mention it yeah you can mention it no way don't buy it <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 always it's good it's like that this is this is the kind of thing that people want to hear okay like what what are the things yeah. that we should not be buying so yeah it's it's uh like in an in the career of an athlete uh you you learn from mistakes in a career of a coach you learn also from mistakes and you can uh uh, I get uh, offers from from uh, people that work for the company, and a lot of uh, so at one time there was uh, a nice discount. I was uh, searching for a device that I get, could use in the field uh, because I like a lot uh, uh, field testing uh, in real life settings, and I, I like being on a track and and testing and sampling there and and coaching. So. Uh, uh, that's what I did also myself when I was an athlete. I did mostly uh, field tests. So, uh, yeah, with these new technologies, uh, you have the VO2 Master uh, that's uh, quite portable. Uh, you'll, you'll see it uh, pass by uh, on famous uh, with famous triathletes like Blumenfeld and so on. But uh, the, my only uh, the thing that, that was... Uh, uh, holding me back from buying it was that it hasn't doesn't have uh, co two <laughs> the the carbon dioxide uh, measure measurement. Uh, so, uh, uh, but Snowy uh, has it vo two and vco two. But uh, yeah, it's totally not not practical to use. It's not reliable. Uh, yeah, it just doesn't work good. And uh, yeah, I, I had some contacts with other buyers, owners of the device, and I hear uh, yeah, the same everywhere. So uh, 
Yeah, I try to uh, give some quality to the people I I work with and who I ask money. So uh, if they if they uh, give me money for a, a test and for to know their uh, yeah their filter uh, max and their their oxygen kinetics uh, in a in a test and and uh, I cannot uh, rely. Uh, on the results of uh, the device is, is not works not well then so uh, to to make a long story short I never used it on a client or an athlete <laughs> I tested it on myself it was not reliable and I gave it now to a scientist of the University of Maastricht uh, because he was conducting a, a research about every uh, yeah VO3 analyzer that was on the market. As well portable as as uh, stationary, and uh, the only company that wouldn't uh, that would not give uh, a device to cooperate in the the scientific research was Pnoi. So he uh, I placed something on the internet uh, about it. And yeah, these those were the devices. And he, in, in the last sentence, there was uh, is a good runner also uh, this the scientist. And uh, it publishes a, a lot of interesting research about running. Maybe a good guest too to, for your podcast. It's Bas van Horen. Uh, remember the name? It's very interesting, uh, and he runs fast for a researcher. Yeah, he runs. I think. I'm yeah, the last, last 10k road race in Holland. It was the national championship. It's is from the Netherlands, uh, and he ran 28:40. For a full-time researcher, yeah, it's a fast guy, and he publishes a lot of interesting research. So, but he's now conducting a research about those uh, ox oxygen analyzers, and uh, yeah, there was in the sentence, Pnoi uh, doesn't collaborate, uh, and I send him a message. I have a Pnoi device, <laughs> so I gave it. I send it to him, and uh, thanks to uh, yeah, this Pnoi device of me. Uh, he, he can uh, if uh, yeah, uh, it's it's uh, integrated in the research and uh, yeah, he sent me the results and it was way the the baddest device of all. <laughs> it it doesn't work at all. It you it, it, yeah, he said uh, he sent back to me that uh, yeah, he wasn't surprised that I had bad experiences with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so what so that's something that you currently cannot do the portable VO2, but they but your top athletes go to the to the lab to do it. But how how often do you do, for example, lactate testing? And when you do, do you do it on the on the track for running and and on the indoor trainer for cycling or on a hill for cycling? How how do you do that? Yeah, I prefer to to the on a track for running. Almost uh, every test uh, I do, or I uh, advise uh, some athletes that live farther, far more far away, they, and they have their own lactate device. And I send them a protocol and uh, a form to complete, and then they give me the the data, the results, and I process it. But uh, I think I do, uh, yeah, to make an estimate, around two hundred uh, lactate field tests in a year. So uh, it's a four, yeah, on average four per week, I think. 
but uh, I like to do it because uh, I put all the, the, the main findings and data in a database on my computer. And uh, I, when I start to work with, with an athlete, I always start with initial lactate tests. And three to four months later, I uh, do another one. So I can compare my approach and I can see what it has uh, influenced on the lactate curve of the particular athlete. So, and when you do this with uh, dozens, hundreds of athletes and you compare it with, uh, with their race performances, especially running is, is a grateful sport for it because it's very, uh, yeah, the, the race, Time and averages on 5K, on 10K, half marathon, you can yeah, locate it in a, in a lactate curve in the zones you derived from it. And you can see where people perform in, in your lactate curves, especially when you test them every three, four months. And with a lot of athletes, I do it this way because they like to see the progress on black and white. And when there was advice or there were some conclusions of an initial test from, oh, your, your uh, lactate is way too high at easy intensities, at, e at uh, relative low heart rate, at uh, uh, relative low paces, and they see the second test that, that everything what we are were, were aiming for is improved, that... that uh, yeah, it's very satisfying. And it's uh, also uh, combined, of course, with uh, the performances that, that uh, improves. But uh, yeah, uh, um, running tests are always uh, on the track in real life settings. And the cycling tests uh, for practical and safety reasons, uh, it's uh, always indoor. But uh, for cycling, the uh, athlete yeah, uses his own bike, his uh, own power meter that who the athlete is training with. And then I'm speaking about the, the athletes who don't go to the lab, uh, but the, the stationary devices there can also, uh, you, you can use your own bike, but the, the biomechanical pattern that you use or the, is the same in cycling, it's more closed. In running, running on a treadmill is a, a lot of more difference uh, compared with running on a track than if you cycle indoor on your own bike with your own uh, pedals and your own shoes and your own... Uh, yeah, there is not that much difference, I think. That's why, uh, for me, indoor uh, cycling tests is uh, yeah not that... Uh, yeah, not, not a problem, I Put yep. it that way. <laughs> one, one question that I find fascinating, and there is a little bit of research, but not, not that much, I don't think, is the transfer effects between different, different disciplines uh, within multisport like duathlon and triathlon. So what do you think about the transfer effects between cycling and running in, in the case of duathlon? Uh, how, how big are these effects? How, how much running improvement can you get by improving your cycling and, and vice versa? Um, I think uh, it has a lot of benefits for uh, as well cyclists as well runners to uh, sometimes to uh, the other uh, discipline or sports because, uh, and you see a lot of them already do it, doing it. 
because uh, for on yeah, you, the social media platform for for athletes and, and uh, sports uh, people is Strava, uh, and in my region, the region where I live, we have there is. Uh, also a very famous cyclist, pro cyclist, Wout van Aert. I sometimes see him ride on the roads in the village I live in. So he's living very close. And what do you, you see on his Strava that is is running sometimes in the morning before uh, he later on the day uh, does a cycling training. And I think uh, from, from a cyclist perspective, it's... Uh, yeah, a healthy way to maintain or stimulate the bone density. And maybe it's also that he feels good by it. To, it it's a time-efficient way to train sober, uh, to activate the body, like I, I explained a little bit uh, earlier in this interview. That um, So I think uh, a variation is good, not only physical, but also... Do you, sorry, do you, do you mean to train, to train fasted? When when it, you talk about yeah, training, in the yeah, world. it's yeah. it's uh, uh, a time efficient way to train fasted and not too demanding, and I think it at- activates uh, fat oxidation and gives the body energy. It activates the muscles. Uh, it it warms the muscles up to to a certain uh, amount, and uh, the the main session later on the day always feels a little bit uh, better, smoother when you already have done something. Uh, so I think there are a lot of benefits for cyclists to uh, integrate sometimes an easy run. The only thing they have to be cautious for is that the yeah, the injury uh, aspect of running it's more uh, yeah puts uh, more tension on on the connective tissues and uh, and uh, yeah the, the muscles the tendons so uh, it's better to do it easy I think. And uh, for runners, when you compare the, the hours of training that elite runners do uh, compared to uh, triathletes or cyclists, it's a lot less. I think they can re- can uh, yeah uh, increase their uh, training total training duration on a weekly basis by do uh, integrating some cycling sessions and especially the day after. Uh, uh, very hard session or a race, I think it's sometimes better to do uh, only one uh, running session and uh, another cycling session to stimulate recovery and uh, to give a little extra physiological stimulus uh, uh, that uh, a training session always is uh, without the the, yeah, the load uh of uh, an extra running session that's always uh, yeah some in some kind of way demanding for the for the the body who is healing and recovering from a hard session the day before or a race the day before and i also when i look to uh, myself and uh, yes when i switched it for switched from athlete to do athlete i my running level wasn't that uh, that uh, yeah. How will, how will I say it? That way more. It wasn't decreased that much. Uh, be- I think thanks to the cycling training, but the volume I ran was way less than when I was uh, only a runner. So uh, I think the uh, the combination of running with cycling. 
uh, helps uh, to uh, runners to uh, yeah may maybe make a, a further step in their improvement and in their continuous progress without uh, risking uh, too much injuries. And especially for runners who uh, are uh, coming from out of a period of injuries or are sensitive for injuries, I think it it can help them uh, a lot because uh, I, with my experience from, from combination of running and cycling training and from uh, duathlon, being a duathlon athlete and coach, I uh, plan a lot of uh cycling sessions for runners who, who are dealing with an injury or uh, had an injury before we started the collaboration. And then I think uh, when they want to uh, improve and you cannot, uh, you can only plan easy sessions in running because uh, they are not uh, ready to, uh, to drive uh, to and in, to increase the intensity, but you can uh, apply this more uh, early with with uh, cycling interval sessions. So you can stimulate the cardiovascular system to a larger extent or at higher intensities way sooner in the rebuild process when you uh, plan cycling sessions uh, compared to only uh, running sessions. Yeah, uh, 100% agree. And, and I think also for... Um, your typical, let's say, recreational or amateur athletes, adults coming into endurance sports, maybe they already have been training for a year or two or even three, but three years is still not that long a time to be running. Like it takes a long time for the body to build up resilience to run a lot. And I think a lot of people, they develop their cardiovascular system faster than their, uh, than their structures, their uh, tendons and tissues and bones. So I think a lot of amateur athletes, especially amateur runners, would benefit from running maybe a bit less and be a bit more safe from injuries because we know that so many amateur runners get injured a lot and add more cycling instead. Uh, so I think, yeah, amateurs listening to this can definitely take take some uh, something from that, what you just said. And, and on that note, uh, if we transition a little bit to talking more specifically about training for amateur athletes, if we have an amateur athlete limited to say seven to 10 hours of training per week, what would, how would you approach that? How would you maximize that uh, time? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, the most, that's a, a large group of athletes that, uh, are, you can, can, uh, situate, uh, in this is, uh, range of, of, uh, Times time they can spend on training uh, on top of work and family, so uh, that's a very re relevant question. I think uh, a somewhat uh, obvious answer answer here is that it of course depends on the athlete's goal, the type of athletes, uh, certain history, the timing of the periodization. But uh, in most cases, I would say eighty or fifty five eighty five percent of the time uh, would be a variation in the intensity range up to uh, the famous zone two. Uh, I wouldn't, would not uh, change this basic principle because uh, an athlete that is limited in time 
and has to deal with other uh, stress factors as work and and maybe a family sometimes too or uh, have a lot of responsibilities that they i think it's important that the training sessions don't uh, don't have to be uh, too much extra stress source so uh, i think uh, i would uh, in most cases, uh, plan uh, a longer, easy training. To uh, that's always uh, one of the cornerstones, I think, in every uh, approach. But uh, and also uh, one time an interval session in the zone two range around the LT one, and uh, possibly uh, in combination with a few short stimuli because I like to uh, combine that uh, type of training a lot with uh, some short bouts uh, after a good warming up. I uh, plan uh, a lot uh, short sub-maximal uh, ma- sub uh, bouts to uh, stimulate the, the faster fibers, but not too demanding, to uh, produce some lactate that the the net lactate blood lactate is elevated and then uh, do the zone two interval and when I uh, let uh, athletes do this on a track and I'm there uh, as a coach and I uh, sample a lot then I see uh, in the first part of the of the session lactate levels around eight twelve forty millimole it depends a bit on the athlete. And after the zone two interval, uh, they have 1.4, 1.5. So it's it's cleared in a fast way. And research is also indicating this, that, that it's the lactate clearance capacity is as a correlation with the VO2 uh, kinetics. So uh, if there is a lot of blood flow to the consuming fibers and you put them at work around their uh, maximum capacity, the, uh, then there is a lot of lactate clearance and everything you, you trigger, you, uh, you improve in the body. So that you give attention that grows. So uh, I think, and it's the best of both worlds, uh, a little bit of, of high intensity. You can call it also sprint interval training, uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm some, an athlete. Uh, so uh, we don't, in, in athletics, we, we normally don't talk about hits or sprint interval we do 100 meter reps 200 meter reps 300 meter reps 400 meter reps or race pace 5k or uh, some terminology uh, comes a bit from from cycling because there are not uh, so many races in 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 particular distances uh, so it's uh, um, not that easy to to determine zones in cycling because you cannot always compare it with a 5k uh, result or a 10k result but uh but, the, would... but those those high intensity bouts can you give an example of yeah what is it five by 200 or how long recoveries or just an example of what it would look yeah, like i will explain a typical uh, session in in uh running and it's after a very good warming up uh 10 minutes of very easy for four to five minutes, a little bit faster than a few minutes shock. Then I let uh, eight or 10 minutes uh, around the LT1 
to uh, activate the contribution of the type 1 fibers at the fullest to, to uh, stimulate blood, blood flow to them and then and to, to, uh, yeah, to be very good warmed up. And then I plan five bouts of 20, 25 seconds. That's sub-maximal sub by feel, like you would race a 400 meter. And it's not all out, but at one, one gear below it, 90-95% uh, of your maximum speed. And um, in most uh, cases, I uh, plan uh, a ratio of 1-3 uh, work-rest ratio. So if they do 20-25 seconds of, of that sprint interval of sub-maximal intensity, then um, uh, I give them uh, one minute and a half of easy jog, and then the second bout comes. Uh, three, four, five reps, it's a bit uh, depending on the on the athlete. It also helps the neuromuscular coordination at higher speeds, and if you uh, elevate your, your uh, maximum or sub-maximal speed, then paces around 3K or 5K becomes also easier for the body to, uh, to conduct and to maintain. And then after the last rep, I most, in most sessions, I plan very short rests, 20, 30 seconds to go right in the zone two that the lactate is elevated and then you uh, start consuming it, consuming it uh, at the possible highest rate of it. So, uh, and then uh, it can be uh, reps of one kilometer, reps of two kilometer, uh, depending on the, the periodization. Uh, what I plan is that I start with very short reps, with short rests, and uh, reps are getting first uh, more in number, and in the second phase, they uh, are uh, extending the duration of the reps, and the rest remains the same. So the work-rest ratio changes automatically in favor of uh, work, more work and less rest. So it can, in during a marathon build-up from a recreation athlete, it can start with reps of three minutes up to reps of 20, 25 minutes. And at uh, yeah, paces for a recreational runner, it can uh, be uh, four minutes per kilometer, five minutes per kilometer, depending on the, on the level. So uh, that is uh, some kind of workout I would uh, suggest to do it because it's a combination of, of the best of both worlds. Uh, uh, besides the long, easy workouts. And then I would advise uh, at maximum one harder session and all the rest easy sessions. And then the harder session can be a threshold, threshold session. If the athlete wants to do uh, a race that where uh, the intensity around threshold is, is, uh, is uh, important, or it, if it's the athlete have, uh, is more oriented uh, to do uh, shorter distances, it can be a session uh, in the yeah, at higher intensities around the critical power of speed, or even uh, closer to the power of speed at uh, the VO2 max. So, and then the, sh the bouts will uh, be shorter than around the critical speeds or around the threshold. It's uh, also. Uh, here I see an, uh, an, uh, yeah, some, some speed power duration curve that the higher you go to a certain upper limit, uh, the, 
the upper limit of, of uh, the intensity with low lactate levels around LT1, the, the maximum lactate steady state and the critical speed, and the uh, upper limit of the ability of the body to process oxygen, the VO2Max, that uh, the shorter you come to a certain upper limit, the shorter the bouts or the, the repetitions are to maintain the efficiency at uh, this intensity. And uh, the further you go away from it, the longer the uh, repetitions can be. To uh, So uh, first, I in the my periodization, and that's if there are elite athletes of recreational, I plan always short reps close to a certain upper limit. And further in the periodization, I try to... Uh, a high fractional utilization of that upper limit to extend it. So uh, that's uh, a bit, uh, yeah, what I have in mind in uh, with uh, for athletes to structure uh, a whole buildup, and that's what I do with uh, this amateur athlete <laughs> uh, who is limited uh, to seven to four ten hours of training. But a lot of it will be easy. Uh, one uh, combined session uh, with very high intensity short bouts and uh, zone two, one longer easy uh, training and one harder session. What if they are a duathlete? So they have two disciplines, the bike and the run, obviously. Would you, um, how would you do that with, you know, getting in the long workout in running and cycling and the uh, the different types of sessions that you mentioned there would you spread it out over two weeks or how how do you how do you work if it's a duathlete versus as a runner let's say if it's a recreational duathlete then there will not be every week a very hard session in as well running as well cycling on his program because i don't think it's necessary and most recreational duathletes um choose the longer duathlon races uh, because they they uh, are more uh, popular in belgium we have the most heavy duathlon race in the world uh, they they call themselves the hell from casterly it's all, all it's been uh, on national television it's uh, in our region a very famous race and you have to run 15 kilometers in the woods uh, then you have to uh, mountain bike 125 kilometers with a lot of uh, uh, steep hills. And then the second run is 30 kilometers. And it's in the winter in, in yeah, circumstances that you can that can be a hell. <laughs> so it's the hell from Castellet. And a lot of duathletes that I coach are, have this as a, a goal because uh, finishing the hell is something do athletes want to do at least once. So uh, they have a, a no, and it's always also the national championship long distance cross duathlon. So, uh, but I don't think the intensity is the most important for this type of duathletes. So uh, I don't plan uh, too much uh, hard sessions. It's a lot, a lot of easy work. And so the most weeks, are just uh, uh, endurance intensities for as well running as well cycling. A lot of, of the most volume they can can do uh, if it's built up gradually, of course. And uh, a lot of zone two work 
and only spiced with some short bouts. Yeah, uh, perfect. Makes sense. Yeah. And uh, if you could give three pieces of advice to athletes listening to this interview, what would that be? Uh, three pieces of advice that is, yeah, some things that I already uh, already mentioned this this uh, this uh, interview and that's something that there to have the patience to uh, try to uh, an easy approach huh? and to uh, do it as long as it takes and long enough because it will will uh, help that your body adapts way better from training sessions and that training sessions on top of work and life uh, uh, everything that that comes with life and family that that the, the sports and the sessions are giving you energy and not uh, demanding further energy and giving stress so uh I think go f uh, another advice is go for uh, a consistent and gradual process and take take it step by step and and try to structure your training and with uh, every two three weeks a little bit more and draw confidence from little steps uh, and from from uh, the feeling that you have and dare to repeat sessions. Uh, if you do a certain session and the week uh, week after it is nothing wrong with uh, repeat the session and compare the feeling of the session and uh, yeah the last uh, advice I, I will give would give uh, like to give is uh, yeah open your minds uh, there are so many uh, interesting sources and podcasts like this uh, these days and uh, that are uh, great to to uh, to read and listen to and uh yeah you can can uh, it can helps a lot with uh, with your own training even if you don't want to connect with a coach then uh yeah it can help to to avoid uh, injuries overtraining and and uh, uh avoid bad performances i think so uh, a little bit of open mind to read and listen uh uh Yeah, what the the knowledge and information that's all there. But uh, a last uh, remark is be a bit uh, skeptical because a lot of information too is is uh, bullshit on the internet. So go for the good uh, uh, sources with with uh, yeah, podcasts like that triathlon show <laughs> who uh, features uh, experts out of the field and or not telling things uh, uh, they uh, they don't know uh, sure or they are not confident about. Otherwise, they also say it, that it's not uh, sure of 100%. So. Thank you for that, yeah. No, those, those are all great tips. And uh, let's move into the rapid-fire questions, uh, starting with what is your favorite book or resource related to endurance sports? Uh, some some years ago, I would uh, recommend the science of winning from uh, Jan Olbrecht. Uh, I, it's a very interesting book. Uh, it's a little bit outdated, a little bit older now, but still very interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, terminology, very interesting things about uh, muscle fibers, about periodization, about different kind of workouts. He is the 
die uh, is a yeah also a Belgian uh, doctor in in is a doctor in uh, exercise physiology and in Belgium he has a uh, quite a reputation because he worked with Luc van Lierte a Hawaii uh, double Hawaii winner and with a lot of Olympic uh, athletes uh, he was from Germany uh yeah, I studied in studied in Germany it at the same school of Alwa Mader who made the mathematical model uh where the Sebastian Weber also based his insight uh algorithms on and the concept of Villa Max was introduced by Alwa Mader and uh Jan Olbrecht is from the same school as uh, Sebastian Weber I'm not the biggest fan of Villa Max as it is promoted then in that book, but uh, it remains a very interested, interesting book. So uh, a little more recent, uh, there is The Science of Running by Steve Magnus, and I mention it with pleasure because it's a very uh, interesting coach, a running coach who is publishing a lot and, uh, yeah, As is a wise man uh, with a lot of interesting tweets and thoughts and, and books, and I think he has a, a podcast too, and uh, with an, with an, uh, with another guy, uh, and he uh, public publishes some books and uh, has a video cha YouTube channel. Uh, so, uh, but uh, the last years, I must say that I'm rather a fan of collecting collecting scientific articles and publications. I uh, collect as many as I can. I, I, uh, I put them on my laptop in, in maps in several topics and uh, I print them too. And uh, the articles I didn't read yet, I put them on a, on a big to-do, to-read list uh, uh, staple a pile. Uh, but... Uh, Yeah, and then when I read them, I uh, put them in the in a in a bookcase here in my my office. Uh, uh, yeah, in several maps uh, of topics. Uh, so uh, I rather prefer uh, scientific publications now than than books. <laughs> yeah, and uh, what is an important habit that you have benefited from athletically, professionally, or personally? Um. I think it is the tendency or the habit to being systematic, uh, being structured in, in thinking and working in order to keep, to being able to keep a certain overview over longer periods, uh, to know what an athlete uh, has done last year, uh, to, uh, to make it a process that goes over multiple years and several months uh, with combined with uh, an eye for some kind of detail because I like to work uh, detailed too in, in warming up protocols, warm down and cool down protocols. And I like to be uh, a bit structured and methodological. I think that helps uh, to get the best out of yourself. <laughs> And finally, who's somebody that you look up to or that has inspired you? Oh, that's definitely my uncle, the brother of my mother. He was a big idol of mine when I was younger. Uh, and I don't say it uh, by coincidence because he, uh, in 1979, he uh, uh, took the Belgian record on the marathon. 
in two hours, 10 minutes and zero seconds. At that time, it was a world-class performance. And although I am a bit too young to uh, have uh, seen his active running career, I was a very big fan because he also qualified two times for the Olympics in 1976, my birth year, and 1980, uh, Montreal and Moscow. And I heard a lot of stories of him. Uh, of course, he, he lives now, so uh, it's, it's not that he is dead, but I didn't saw him uh, running. But uh, he, when there were family meetings, he was always I was always asking questions about his time that he was an elite runner. He ran 27 minutes 48 in 1976. So uh, yeah, I, if I had a talent, I was a very lucky guy, but... <laughs> It's, uh, the family records are very, uh, very hard to break. <laughs> so uh, it's unbelievable what he has achieved, uh, knowing that he started only running at the age of 18 after being a football player. And a few years later, he ran sub-28 sub at 10K. And he was part of what we call here in Belgium a golden generation of runners. It, was, it started with Gaston Roland, Olympic gold in the steeplechase, world record in the steeplechase at 1964 Olympics. And there was forming a group by a very famous coach it, it, uh, it, with, he, who coached uh, amongst others uh, Ivo van Damme. The Memorial van Damme in Brussels as a Diamond League meeting is called after him. He won uh, two times uh, silver medal at the 1976 Olympic Games. There's Emil Putemans was in that group, silver Olympic medalist in 1972, 10,000 meters. There's Karel Lismond, uh, two Olympic Games, a medal in marathon. Uh, there were so many good runners in Belgium. We had a, 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 an incredible generation and there was one coach, Mon van den Ende, who was the coach of these, uh, these athletes, of a lot of these athletes. And uh, so it's it's so fascinating the stories that my my uncle tells about the way they trained. I, I will give a, a few examples if there's still some time. <laughs> but they performed uh, very hard intervals on an athletics track. They jumped into a car, uh, doors and windows closed. They set uh, bending a uh, bended uh, on their uh, with their legs uh, flexed. Uh, to, to, uh, to not recover, to, to be able to recover, the door went open and they did uh, immediately a, a new interval. Those strategies, they, they, the coach uh, tried it out. They, there's a re they trained in a region with, with a lot of, of uh, hills and they uh, did hill sprints with another athlete on their back and, and things like this. And every year they went two, three times to St. Moritz for training camps. And it, they trained three times a day, a lot of days, only running. And uh, the athletes who uh, have famous athletes go there now, nowadays. Uh, St. Moritz is, is a, a very good place for, for altitude camp. Uh, I went, uh, I think, four or five times there. It's very beautiful in Switzerland with the lakes and the mountains. But there is in uh, near the village, uh, and, and the athletics track is is a lake of four kilometers, around four four and a half. And they with their group sometimes they uh, 
uh, they chose uh, places around the lake where they started and then they started to run hard and when another one catches you you had to stop and uh, the the training was to uh, to be able to run uh, as last runner <laughs> to <laughs> was uh yeah so this uh, kind of workout uh, they did <laughs> and uh there were fantastic stories about this time although now he admits it was way too intensive and uh later in his career he was uh, a lot of uh, injured and he had a very short career and I, it was uh called uh, yeah the cause uh, caused by uh, this intense approach of very high volume and very a lot of very hard intensity uh, workouts so uh, but he, it's a uh, yeah it's uh, someone i have uh, look up to <laughs> yeah that's fascinating and uh, finally where can people find you and uh, follow you um, they can find me on instagram Optimum Performance is the name of the little coaching and testing business I have. Uh, and that's optimize your sport performance, reach your personal top. Uh, and I have an Instagram account and a Facebook page, but uh, I like Instagram the most. And yeah, that's why people, that's where people uh, can find me. Perfect. Uh, thank you so much, Peter. It's been great to chat. Lots of really cool information and uh, perspectives. So really appreciate it and hope to do it again another time. The pleasure was all mine. Thank you very much, Mikael, for this uh, invitation and opportunity to share some passion. I hope that you enjoyed that interview. You can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com and uh, I'll link to Peter's Instagram, which is his main uh platform for coaching and uh, information so check him out there message him there if you are interested if you want to improve your triathlon performance and uh, need some help to achieve your goals then consider working with a scientific triathlon coach or one of our training plans we have options for different budgets uh, for athletes of all different levels and uh, no matter the size and type of your goal uh, we don't have any minimum commitment terms for coaching nor any startup fees and for the training plans we have a 100 satisfaction guarantee for plans purchased on the website and we have an exchange guarantee so that you can exchange your plan for another plan if you purchase through training peaks we also have consultation and customized plan options, so there is something for everybody. Find out more and contact us on scientifictriathlon.com and we can discuss your specific goals and needs and see what's best for you. Finally, big thanks to our sponsors, Form. They can find on formswim.com forward slash TTS. Improve your swim training with real-time metrics like pace, stroke rate and heart rate and advanced post-swim analysis. Use the code TTS15 to get 15% off the Form Smart Swim Goggles. And thank you to Senate. Use the Senate Swim Trainer to improve your technique, power, stamina, and swim training consistency. You can try the Senate risk free for up to 30 days and get a special bundle including the Swim Trainer and a number of Senate training plans and on demand workouts on senateswimtrainer.com for slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.